It's fast-paced. As, as you read through this, one of the words that's probably going to show up and that you'll notice is that it says immediately. Immediately this, immediately that, immediately these things. Over 40 times, Mark uses a Greek word, euthus, that means, we translate it as immediately, and sometimes he's saying, this happened, and right after that, this happened. Sometimes he's using it just as a, a uh, storytelling device to, to keep the story moving along, but it's creating this fast-paced narrative that stuff is happening, and this is going on, and that's going on, and all of that to give us a fast-paced thing. Now, that said, he also gets into a lot of details, and some of these details are, are pretty interesting. I want to look at one example. Um, like I said, this morning we're kind of doing an overview, getting an idea of what's going on with Mark as we begin. So we're going to take a look at a couple of examples. Yes, we're studying the book of Mark, but turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28, there is an account of something that Jesus did. I think that once we get to it, you'll probably recognize it fairly quickly. But Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Can I have a volunteer to, to stand up and in a loud and thunderous voice read that out for us? Thank you. Verse 28. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. And when he came to the other side, to the, to the country of the garden, Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay. So Jesus arrives in this country. One of the reasons I had you read it is I can't pronounce it correctly here, so it's okay. Um, Gardarines, gardens, something like that. He comes to this country, and he's met by two demon-possessed men that were so fierce no one could pass that way. Sounds kind of cool. Something's going on. Turn to Luke chapter 8. We were in Mark, Matthew chapter 8. Let's go to Luke chapter 8. In Luke eight twenty-seven, Same situation, same story that's going on. How does Luke describe this? Again, if I can have a uh, volunteer in a loud and thunderous voice. All right, thank you. Now when Jesus stepped out on the land, Something big is going on here. Um, Jesus gets out. Here it says that he, he gets onto the land and he's met by a certain man. And this is the, the situation that's going on. Now, let's turn to the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 5, each of those, there was one, one verse, maybe two, that tells about it. In Mark chapter 5, we're going to read four verses. I'll read these. Um, we're going to read four verses. And, uh, well... I'll read 6. Mark chapter 5, starting off in verse 1. And they came to the other side... Well, sorry, I still hear pages turning. I'll give you a moment to go ahead and get there. I, I told you, Mark is fast-paced. There's a lot going on. He's moving quickly. And yet, you're going to see here, he dives into some great details about the situation and what's going on. All right, Matthew, or Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Exactly, exactly, that's my point. As we go through the book of Mark, I want you to see Mark is telling an epic story. 
He's going to be moving fast-paced. You're going to find, as you read through it, that there are certain accounts that are very short, only a few verses, and, and he doesn't tell us a whole bunch. And then other places, he's going to go into great detail. And if you start to read it out loud, kind of like I did, it becomes very thrilling, action-oriented. And you're going to find out that, that he is weaving a story for us that is epic, that is huge, that's massive. I mentioned that this is an epic, fast-paced, thrilling account. The book itself is very action-oriented. There's not a lot of dialogue. Now, there will be times in which Jesus speaks, and those are recorded, and they're, they're very important. But as you go through it, you're going to notice that there's a lot of times in which it's just what Jesus did. Now, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. There's, there's a variety of things going on. But what he's doing is letting us know what, how Jesus served, what he did, what actions he took in order to tell the story and in order to make the point that he's trying to make. And really, that's about, as I said, the greatest character who ever walked the earth. Now, character, when I, when I say that, it may sound kind of odd in your ears. Like, wait a minute, you're calling Jesus a character? What, what's going on? I, I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I mean that he is setting up a real question. Who is this guy? I'm about to tell you a story, a massive, epic story. It's thrilling. It seems unbelievable. And I'm telling you that this is true, that this is what happened. I'm telling you about a particular person, about Jesus. And the question that Mark is really coming to with all of this is, who is Jesus? Who is he? The entire book hinges on that one question. As we go through this, we're going to see a bunch of things that happen. And Mark is weaving them together and letting us know who Jesus is. Mark wants us to understand certain things about it. I would propose that that is the main point that Mark is attempting to make. In the first half of the book, he sets Jesus up as the mighty Messiah. And we're going to go through and we're going to see all kinds of awesome, amazing things. Miracles and interactions that just blow people away. They don't understand what's happening. How is it that, that someone from his background could teach such amazing things? He teaches with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. He's doing all of these awesome, amazing miracles. How do we deal with this? What is going on? That's the question that Mark wants us to ask and that he wants his reader and that he wants to then give an answer in the second half. We're going to find out that Jesus is the suffering servant and it, it comes to a point where it's awesome and amazing and then it turns the corner and it shows that Jesus didn't come to wipe out Rome, to defeat all of the enemies, to, to bring peace and prosperity on earth at that time in the way that the Jews were expecting. Instead, he came to suffer and die. And Mark's going to tell us all about how he does that. At the very beginning, at pretty much the very end, and halfway through, we see declarations of who Christ is. There are three confessions that I, I think create and set up the, the structure as we go into this. And I want to take a look at those uh, here real quick. The very first one comes in the very first verse. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which we're, we're going to come back and we're going to dissect and dig into a little bit more. But in the very first verse, Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's a declarative statement. There's a lot packed into that. Like I said, we're going to come back and we're going to dig into that. But from the very beginning, he lets it be known, this is somebody important. This is somebody special. And I'm about to give you some really big good news about this. The next one comes in chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Obviously, when we get to this, we're going to dig more into it. There's a lot that leads up to it. There's a lot that comes after it. <clears throat> but this is probably one of those fairly famous, well-known portions of what happens, one of those episodes or events in the life of Christ that, that people are fairly familiar with. Um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he asks the simple question, who do people say that I am? 
That's the question. That's the big deal about all of the Gospels. Who is Jesus? Well, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? In verse 28 of Mark chapter 8, they answer him. They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Maybe, maybe you're one of the prophets. Okay, that's, that's what people are saying. But he continued by questioning them, verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Peter. As we go through this, I, I hope that you really enjoy Peter. He's a regular guy. He's a normal person, and he does some amazing things, and he does some foolish things. He's a great character that we're going to get into. But Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. That's a big statement. That is massive. That is earth-shattering. And I know we haven't dug into it. We don't know all that's going on with that yet, but there's a lot. And Peter has just declared, that's who you are. Jesus actually says, all right, keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Don't. He, he warned them to tell no one about him. The amazing thing is right after this, Jesus starts telling, hey, I'm, I'm about to get executed. Bad things are going to happen. It's not going to be fun. And Peter, the same Peter, jumps up and is like, no way, that can't happen. We're not. No. Uh-uh. And, and Jesus has to rebuke him, uh, get after him. And the next confession that comes up is really near the end of the book. In Mark chapter 15, Mark 15 and verse 39, and this one is really, really cool, because the first one was Mark, the author. He is, is setting up the book and letting us know this is where we're going. I'm, I'm setting out to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a big deal. This is very important. Later, we have one of Jesus' disciples who, who Jesus asks them and is like, well, what are people saying about me? What do, what do, who do they say that I am? Well, this and that and these things. Who do you say that I am? Well, I mean, what would we expect his disciples to say? They ought to know that he's the Messiah. They ought to be ready to give that kind of an answer. I mean, it, it seems reasonable. This is when Jesus, chapter 15 is when Jesus is on the cross and he dies. There's a whole bunch going on there. I don't want to get into all of the details yet, but verse 39. Verse 39. When the centurion... Now, who remembers what a centurion is? Go ahead and just shout it out. He's a commander of... of a hundred who? hundred Roman soldiers. This is not a Jew. This is not an Israelite. This is not someone who was looking for the coming Messiah, who, who had spent their lives anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises. This is a Gentile. This is someone who is steeped in the Roman military and way of life and all of that. The centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there's a whole bunch going on in there, and we're, we're going to get to it eventually and dig into that. But I want you to notice that there are three declarations as we go through this, three confessions of who Jesus is. If you get nothing else from the entire book, from the entire study that we're going to go through, I want you to get this. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He was dead he was buried, and he rose again. Because that is true, it should change your life. That is the book summarized. There's a whole bunch going on. We're going to dig into it. We're going to look at it. I'm really excited about seeing how he proves all of that and how he goes through that. But if you get nothing else from the entire study, if you get nothing else from reading the, the book of Mark, get this. Jesus is the Son of God. He fulfilled prophecy. He was dead he was buried, and he rose again. And because that is true, it should change your life. Now, Mark doesn't really get into how and, and why and what's going on and what differences and changes that's going to make in your life. He, his gospel is going to end not really telling us what we're supposed to do as a result of that. Paul and Peter and the other apostles go on to tell us that, and, and we learn those other things in Scripture. 
But what Mark is doing is he's setting up the gospel, setting up the good news about who Jesus is so that you know this should change your life. I made the connection and I said, you know, think about a movie, think about an epic story. Those are, they're cool, they're fun, they're enjoyable. Nine times out of ten, a good story shouldn't really be changing your life. Not like that. But when we come to the story that Mark is telling us, he expects it to make a difference in who we are and how we live and what we do because it is true. It's not just some fun story for the sake of telling. He's going to tell it very well. He's going to tell it in a way that gets our attention, that draws us in, that shows us some epic proportions and and really some earth-shattering ideas. And it's really cool and it's really fun. But if all that you get from it is just a cool story, then you miss the point. It's expected to change your life. Now, I'm going to guess, because I know you guys, some of you have already read through the entire book of Mark, haven't you? I, I see a couple of heads nodding. That's good. That's good. I encourage you to. I'm glad. Some of you probably haven't yet. That's okay. I, I understand. Um, It is a fairly long book, 16 chapters. There's a lot in there. And if you started the year with a a read through the Bible in a year, you're probably not quite to the New Testament yet. That's okay. I understand. You You might not have gotten there yet. But I want to encourage you as we go through this study, like I said, we've got a while, but at some point, preferably within the next couple of weeks, I want to encourage you to read the entirety of it. Not just read parts, but read it straight through. Get the entire view. Now, I understand that's a big ask. What I would encourage you, because, as I said, it's an epic story, there's a lot going on, and it was given in a time and in a way that it was supposed to be orally heard, not just read, but heard, I would encourage you to find an audio version of it and listen to it as you have the the book in your hands so that you're both seeing it and hearing it. That's actually one of the ways that I like to study God's Word is to hear it and see it so that it it gets into me a little bit better and I don't get distracted as easily. But I want to encourage you, take the time to read through and listen through the entirety of it. I know that's a big ask. How many of you have watched a movie in the last week? A a regular full-length movie. Most of those are an hour and a half to two hours. In order to listen to this, if you go to BibleGateway.com, that's, that's where I would recommend because they have a lot of different audio books or audio Bibles, different readers of the same version. It's, it's a great resource. Um, I would encourage you to use any of them. You go to that and, and it's going to take you a full 85 minutes, which is less than an hour and a half. So if you can endure an entire movie, you can want, listen through this. And with the framework that I'm, I'm trying to present to you, I think that you're going to catch the flow. You're going to catch the impact that this book makes. You're going to pick up on some of the storytelling devices and the way that Mark is, he's not just picking out random things to tell us about Jesus. He's not just spattering us with some random facts and information. He's telling us a story and he's creating this narrative as we watch what Jesus did, the actions that he takes, so that we pick up a really neat vision and and picture of who Jesus, the Son of God, is. So that we understand this isn't just some guy, some regular story. It's not just a biographical sketch or a biography about an interesting individual. This is life-changing, earth-shattering, world-defining story. And, and Mark wants us to know that. And I think that by listening to it and reading through it and getting it in its entirety, you're going to pick up on some of those things. So I know, like I said, it's a big ask, but it only takes about an hour and a half. You can get through the entire thing, and I think that it will be very, very valuable to you. So I want to encourage you to do that. Now, a few, just a, a few quick facts about the book of Mark. Obviously, I've, I've painted a picture. We've, we're getting started on it. But a few things to know about it. It is the shortest of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each was written uh, to tell us certain things about who Jesus is, what he did, what he spoke, how things worked. Um, this one is the shortest. It is uh, repeated in the other places about 90% of it. So there's very little in the book of Mark that is different or unusual than other 
books, um, other gospels, are going to tell us a lot of the same episodes, a lot of the same accounts and different things going on. That's okay. As we go through this study, we are going to compare and we're going to look at those and try and fill out some of the information that's going on. But Mark, like I said, he's trying to to give us a story and it's fast-paced and he keeps it moving. And so even though a lot of it is repeated in other places, Mark is being very intentional about what he's doing. So as we go through, we're going to dig in, we're going to try and identify what is it that Mark is trying to teach us and we're also going to reference those other uh, Gospels and see you know, a little bit more of the story and what's going on. Uh, this is the most storytelling, the most dramatic of all the Gospels. The other Gospels, e- each of the Gospels, each of the writers set out to do something, to, to create a point, to help people understand different things. Um, they call that the synoptic problem. It's not really a problem as much as just each of these writes about the same event. And they're trying to, trying to tell us different things about it. And for some people, they look at that and like, well, why doesn't Matthew agree with Mark? And why are they... And it's like, hang on. If you watched something, if you witnessed something, and then somebody else saw the same thing uh, at a different angle, are you going to give the exact same account? Actually, I'm going to guess, correct me if I'm wrong, when, when people are investigating things, if everything is exactly the same, that kind of takes away credibility, right? It's fishy. But if, if I give you what I saw and somebody else gives you what they saw, then what are we able to do? We're able to build a better, bigger picture of everything that's going on. Instead of just one view, God gave us four different to be able to understand these things. Now, as we go through, there are a, a few items that are a little bit challenging. Mark has some things, we call them textual variants, or, or items where it, it raises questions like, that doesn't make sense. Wait, does that line up with this one? And we're going to have to take some time and dig into those and try and figure out, okay, why is there a difference here? Is it contradictory or is it not? Now, obviously, I'm going to tell you from the get-go, it's not. There's a, there's a lot of things going on, and we're going to dig into those, and we're going to find out why. But they're not contradictory, but they are going to be different perspectives and different views on things that are going on. Um, that actually is one of the challenges that the book of Mark has. Um, another item that comes up, like I said, is textual variances, which if you've studied Greek at all, you know that when it was originally written in Greek, somebody wrote things down, and then they were copied. And those copies were distributed and sent all over the place. And then a thousand years later, those copies begin to be gathered back together, and we start looking at them, and there's a little bit of a difference. Now, if you're interested in that and you want to know more about how textual variances happen and all of that, we're going to get to that on Wednesday nights. I would encourage you to come out, join us for those studies. It'll be a little while before we get to it, but we'll dive much deeper into all of that. But there's really good reasons that those things happen, um, but we do need to be aware that that is one of the challenges in modern-day understanding the book of Mark. Why are there these differences? Two great examples, one at the very beginning and one at the very end of the book of Mark. The last several verses of the book, of chapter 16, are argued about. Should they be included or not? Were they part of the original or not? Um, Just for your awareness, the the question, the debate comes down to, does the book of Mark end at 16 verse 8 with some extra information that was provided later? Or does the book of Mark end at chapter 16, verse 20. And that's, that's a textual variance. That's a question that we're going to have to deal with and we're going to dig into. And if you were here for Sunday school, you heard me say, I like questions. But I also like trying to find the answers. I like digging into it. And so as, as we go through, that's one of those questions that you're going to have to dig into and we're going to dig into and look at. And we'll come to a conclusion and we'll look at why do we believe those things. But that's one of the big questions that comes up. In most Bibles, you'll see verses or sections that are in brackets. And those brackets give you an idea, an indication that that's where a textual variant or a argued portion is. And so when you come to those, don't look at it and be like, oh, well, you know, we, we can't really know. There's no way to know what the Bible says. And now, well, we'll just throw up our hands and give up. No. We can dig into it. We can understand it. What they're doing is being honest enough to say, hey, there are some scholars that argue about this, and you need to take a second look. You need to not just skim by this real fast and 
and keep moving, you need to slow down. Dig in. Study God's word. Cherish it. Find out what's going on and, and why are these things here and what's, what's happening. So, it's a lot more than I intended to say on textual variances, but like I said, we are going to really dive into that and understand why those exist uh, on Wednesday nights. Um, but Mark has a bunch of them, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with that. They happen. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to deal with those? We'll get to those as we, get, as we approach them. Um, one of the things that you'll notice very, very quickly is that there's no um, genealogy at the beginning of this. And why? Why is it different? We'll, we'll get into that a little bit uh, as we approach the start. Now, as, as you study the book of Mark, one thing that you do need to be aware of is some geography. What does the nation or the, the area of Israel look like? Because there's going to be a lot of place names that come up. So if you've got at the back of your Bible one of the, the maps, or if you go online and find a map of the, the area of Israel during the time of Christ, that would be very helpful. It would be a good uh, reference tool for you to be able to, to see what's going on. You need to know where the Sea of Galilee is, which is kind of in the north, where the Dead Sea is, which is kind of in the south. The, the River of Jordan connects the two. On the left side, I know my maps, uh, cardinal direction west. On the west side is the bulk of Israel, but in between there's an area called Samaria, and there's a lot that goes on there. The northern area is called Galilee. The southern area is called Judea. Okay? These are going to become very, very important as we go through the story. Now, most of the events stays in the north part during the first half. Now, that's one of those where if you start looking at the other Gospels, you'll find that Jesus travels to Jerusalem multiple times. But Mark doesn't record most of that. So just because Mark doesn't say, oh, and he took this trip to Jerusalem and then came back to the north, that doesn't mean that he didn't do it. It just means that Mark didn't record it because it wasn't necessary at that time. Most of the first half of what happens is in the north. As we transition through the middle of the book, he's going to take a trip south and then the last half of the book, basically, ends up just in Jerusalem. We'll, we'll dig into that as we go. The book of Mark, uh, this, is, this is number eight. I haven't numbered all of these as we go through. But the eighth item is that uh, it is the simplest literarily. By that I mean that the language, the flow, the way that it's presented is really the simplest of all the Gospels. And so it, it actually, it, for those of you who are starting to dig into some Greek and trying to understand that, this is a really, uh, I'm going to say, easy one because the words aren't real complex. Mark is not trying to make this big, huge treatise on the historical events. He's telling a story. And so he's using very simple language, and he's, he's letting it be known so that anyone who hears this will be able to understand what's going on. He, he uses a storytelling device called the historical present. And so for those of you who, who do dig into the, the verbs and the way that they work, he's going to use a present tense verb a lot to say what happened in the past. We call it a historical present. Don't get distracted by that or allow it to, to throw you off too much. What's going on is that it's a, a rhetorical device, a storytelling device to put you into the moment to see what's happening. We do this frequently with news reports. A news report is all about what did happen, but it's going to use an a immediate example and an immediate phrasing so that you feel it, so that you understand it, so that you're, you're there experiencing it yourself, knowing what's going on. Um, a good example of this is when they're, when they're out on the boat and the, the sea is, is raging and the waves are coming and all of that. He's not going to say, well, they were in the boat and they saw this and they did that and all of this. He's, he's expressing it in, as a happening right now, as the things that are going on immediately. He's also going to use uh, what's called a sandwiching technique, where he'll start a story and then he'll insert something else and then he finishes the story. Don't get distracted by that, but recognize that all of that flows together as he's making a point. And so we'll, we'll dig into those as we go along as well. The other thing that I want you to be aware about, the last thing on the book of Mark, is that it historically has been the most neglected of the Gospels. It's been the one that people really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to. In fact, there wasn't a commentary written on it until about the 6th century. So 600 years had been around and nobody really like 
expressed it and dug into it. Um, and even today, a lot of folks don't study it, don't read it, don't dig into it. Let me ask you, how many of you have been reading through, you read the book of Matthew, which that's the first gospel to read, right? It's, it's right there. And then you're like, book of Mark? I mean, I just got done with the gospel. I'm re- let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's jump forward and see the Acts and then the Apostles. Or some, some reading plans will have you read the book of Luke and then the book of Acts because Luke wrote both of those and they flow together. And, and that gets you the, the picture, the story, and then jump on from Acts into the writings of Paul. Well, we missed Math or Mark. I, I don't know about you, but I, I have done that in the past where I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to keep going because I, I want to finish out the story. And you miss the book of Mark. Um, that It happens. That's not to say that it ought to, but it has happened the most uh, throughout history. It happens even today. The interesting thing, though, is that there's never been an argument, serious major argument, that it is canonical or that it's supposed to be part of the Bible. It's just one that gets neglected. So they don't argue that it shouldn't be there. They just don't pay attention to it. How many of you have done that? I know this is a little bit of a side note, but how many of you have done that? You say the Bible is so important, it's so valuable, it's so necessary, and then you just ignore it. Something that popped to my head as I was going through and studying, I'm like, oh man, yeah, I need to deal with that one. It happens. I'm not encouraging it, but I'm acknowledging it. So the book of Mark, this study is going to give us an opportunity to dig into that and, and look through a lot. Throughout the book, uh, Mark is going to present Christ as a servant. Matthew presents Jesus as the king. Luke presents him as a man that is the fulfillment of some prophecies and a a big thing going on. John is going to talk about his eloquent words and the the, um, sermons and speeches that Jesus gives and the things that go on. That's where, where John puts his focus. But Mark really puts his focus on Christ as a servant. And that's why there is no genealogy at the beginning. Because who cares where a slave comes from? I I say servant, but slave is the idea. His background doesn't matter. His eloquent words don't matter. What matters is what does the slave do? Because a slave is there to serve, to accomplish things. And so that's not to say that Mark ignores those or, or lessens them or puts them to the side, but that's the, the picture or the idea that Mark is going to be presenting is that Jesus is the servant. And that's something that the Romans would definitely recognize because there were hundreds and thousands of slaves in the Roman Empire. That's something that the Jews would recognize because Isaiah talks about the suffering servant and that's what they're looking forward to. And so Mark is writing this in such a way to present Christ as the servant so that everyone will recognize who is this guy, this, this character, this person that we've heard about. Who is he? What's, what's really going on? Throughout the book, we're going to see his diligent labor, his need for food, his need for rest, his anger, his groanings, his affection, a display of his humanity, of his virtues, of his perfection. We're also going to see his lordship, his omniscience, his power, his authority to cast out demons, his ability to forgive sins, to silence the wind and the sea. We're going to see his deity. Such a slave served sinners as the slave savior. His life was their ransom for the fulfillment of the eternal purposes of God. He was God's slave, God's servant. That's what Mark is trying to help us understand. He tells the story with minimal comment, and he actually doesn't explicitly explicitly state anything about who he's writing to or why he's writing. So if you had the pre-study guide that, that I give out for you to start digging in and looking. I asked you as best as you can, you know, who did he write to? Why did he write? Where was it written from? All of that stuff. Mark doesn't actually tell us most of those things. So please don't think that I was setting you up for failure. There are ways to to dig into those and and learn them. But Mark himself doesn't really give us a lot of that. Now, we, we do still ask the question, to whom, where, why, and when was it written? Um, really, all of these blend together. If you start reading different scholars and their, their reasoning and their basis, 
When you come to a conclusion on one, you kind of end up with the same conclusion on all of them. So all of that fits together. There is general agreement that it was written sometime between AD 50 and AD 75. Uh, it was written to the Gentiles somewhere between Rome and Antioch, and it was written from that same area. Now, I, I know I just gave you a broad amount of time and a broad location. That's what is definitely agreed on. Um, the edges of those, so the, the further away from a central point and the further out in the time frame that you get, the, the more that that tends to be because of a certain assumption that that scholar has. So I would encourage you to take a little bit of time, dig into those, and try and read um, some of those. But when, when we really get down to the end of that, I would ask the question, how specific do we need to get to understand exactly when he wrote? In going through all of that, um, I, I come to the conclusion that it was written around the early AD 60s and from somewhere in the general vicinity of Rome to the citizens of Rome. We know that it was written to Gentiles because of the way that it's written and different things going on, but I, I would contest that it's somewhere in the range of Rome um, and that the reason that he's writing is because persecution is starting to pick up. You guys, if you remember a lot of your, your early church history, long about 65 to 70 AD, persecution ramps up. A guy by the name of Nero comes into power, and ultimately the city of Rome burns. And who gets blamed? The Christians. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the setting that's going on. And as they are starting into this idea of more persecution, the, the question really comes up, so, so why? What's, what's going on? How are we supposed to be able to deal with this? In light of all of that, the Gospel of Mark really becomes a pastoral response to the situation that they face. It connects them with Christ. Christ suffered and dealt with all of these things. And, and was that right? Was that good? Was that what should have happened? No, because Jesus is the Messiah. He shouldn't be executed. Well, you are followers of him. And this, these persecutions and these things that are coming up and all of that, that's okay. It's not to be fought against. It's not to become this, this terrible, horrible thing. You're experiencing many of the same things that Jesus went through. How do you do that? How are you going to be able to endure through all of that? That's some of the, the setting and the picture of what's going on. Uh, one quote that I came across that I, I thought was really interesting. Nothing that they could suffer from Nero or whoever the persecution was coming from was alien to the experiences of Jesus. Betrayal from both within and without, persecution, suffering, humiliation, all of that. There was nothing that was unique to them as they were dealing with all of this. So it, it becomes a very encouraging thing as they're hearing these stories and understanding, hey, that Jesus that I'm following, these things that I'm suffering, it all fits together and makes sense. Now the question does come up, who wrote it? Uh, Mark. That's, I mean, <laughs> tradition says that Mark wrote it. Um, all of the early church fathers agree to that. There's really not a lot of argument that Mark is the one who wrote it um, and that he was heavily influenced by Peter that he followed Peter around. It's, it's attested to by the early church writings as well as tradition. Um, and there's, there's really nothing that argues against that and says, oh, no, it had to be somebody else or some other way. Um, this, it's significant that he hangs out with Peter a lot, not only because that lends the apostolic authority or that it is reasonable to accept it as part of the Bible, but it also gives us an what, where the eyewitness testimony is coming from. So things that he's going to record, he heard Peter preaching about and talking about and telling about. And so Mark was able to give us a reliable account of eyewitness testimony of what was going on. Now in the handout, I gave you a bunch of different references that tell us about who Mark was. I don't think that we've got time to dig into all of those today. I want to encourage you, look at this character of Mark he comes up named John Mark, and there's a lot that goes on with him. He, he appears multiple times as you go through, and um, very, very interesting character. With that foundation, I do want to take some time and dig into Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So if you would turn there, we're going to take a look. 
Now, I've given you a lot to, to think about, a lot to process through. I understand that. Um, <laughs> there's a ton. That's okay. I want to dig into just the first verse this morning, just for a, a brief moment, and then we're going to take a so what. What do we do with all this? What's, what's the point? What's going on? In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Beginning. This is the start. He's laying the foundation. He's getting ready to introduce something that's going on. It introduces the book as a whole, but it also introduces the first episode. We're about to look at John the Baptist. We'll, we'll get into him next week, who is a, a starting figure for the story of Christ. He's prophesied to be the forerunner of Christ. And so Mark is, is setting this up and saying, hey, this is the beginning, this is the start the beginning of the gospel. What does gospel mean? Does anybody remember? Good news. That's, that's really the, the basic definition. Good news or glad tidings. Now, it was used regularly as an announcement for celebration. When an a army or a, a group was victorious in battle, they would announce the gospel, the good news of that victory that just occurred. Well, that's what Mark is making the claim right here. He's, we, we get so used to this term gospel that it's, it's, well, it's the story of Jesus, right? Well, when Mark wrote this, and when his initial listeners would hear it, they weren't so familiar with that term as we think of it. They had a different idea and a different concept. And so we call it the gospel of Mark because we're just so used to that term. And yet, when Mark uses it, when he starts off saying, hey, this is the gospel, he's, he's setting up a banner and he's saying, hey guys, pay attention, listen, this is big stuff. This is good news. This is a massive announcement that you need to hear. So he doesn't use gospel just, just flippantly or loosely. He's making it known. Now as we go through, we're going to find out he's not writing a biography of Jesus. I already told you that. He's not writing this... this um, historical treaties to give all the details, he's making a proclamation. He's telling the story of a massive victory that was just won about who Jesus is. This is a huge announcement that he wants people to know. Jesus, also a name that we, we take for granted. We hear it so often, and yet the word, Jesus, it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua which is Yahweh saves. And so we, we're so familiar with Jesus, you hear Jesus and it's kind of a, okay, yeah, I know who you're talking about, I know what's going on. But, but here, when they hear that, we're, we're saying something specific about him. And you'll recall from the other accounts, when, when we do have his birth story, that Mary and Joseph were both told to name the baby Jesus. That's the name that God wanted him to have, and it means Yahweh saves. So we're starting off with a huge declaration. Victory has been won. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, saves. That's what's going on. Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we get, again, so used to hearing the two connected, and yet this is a name and a title that are connected together. Christ, it means the anointed one. Um, it was used as the promised one of Israel. The, you go through the prophecies of the Old Testament and you're going to find out that they are looking forward to a promised Messiah, a promised Christ who will be anointed as the king. Um, it's, it's promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's promised throughout Isaiah. It's promised in Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, and tons of times in the Psalms. We even looked at a couple of those that are looking forward to the coming of Christ. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise. And here, Mark is saying, hey, I have big news about this guy by the name of Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He is the anointed one. He is the coming king. He is the Messiah. That's making a big statement. This isn't just um, you know, a simple introduction to, hey, you know, I want to tell you a story about this, these things that happened. He's setting up a headline news 
standing out in the, in the crowd, kind of like the, the newspaper sellers used to do. Extra, extra, read all about it. I want you to know who this is and what's going on. That's how he's starting off this book, this gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he makes this statement, the Son of God. Now I told you there's a bunch of textual variances. And this is the first one that comes up right from the beginning. There's some argument from the scholars about how is this supposed to be phrased and what's going on. And you, you can dig into that. Um, and what it comes down to is there's, there's three basic options, I guess. One is that, it, that the first verse ended at the gospel of Jesus Christ and it, that somebody later added in son of God. Well, if that's the case, does that actually damage the gospel? Not really, because the entire book is telling us that that's who it is. And that's the argument that they would make. Well, they added it so that it, everything fits together. It, there's not a lot of evidence for that. There's not a lot of reason to believe that. But it is something that, that comes up. And so I'm willing to acknowledge there is some argument on that one. It's not very solid argument, but there is argument. The one that really does come up and becomes a, a more significant one is the addition of a, uh, a single word, that's name slipped my mind. Sorry. The article. The word the. And, and really the question is, should it say the son of the God or the son of God? The cool thing about Greek is either way we know who it's talking about. <laughs> Whether it includes the God or just the son of God, he's referencing the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. And that's, it's still making the exact same claim. So really, that textual variant doesn't make a huge difference. And that's what we're going to find as we get into a lot of these, that yes, it's, it's kind of, if you've ever written in cursive and you forgot to go back and put a dot above the I, does that change what you wrote? Does that change what it means? Does that change whether or not you can understand it? Eh, maybe if you're hard trying to read it, but... Really, it doesn't make a huge difference. This is one of those. It doesn't make a huge difference, whether there's an extra the or not, because it means the exact same thing in this situation, in this setting. So, uh, ultimately, the, the balance of evidence does favor the present reading. Um, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's, that's what it says, that's what it means, and that's probably the most likely of what was originally written by Mark. It does come a little bit redundant because that's what Mark's going to be saying over and over again. And yet, that's what Mark's going to be saying over and over again. And so it makes sense that he would include it there to let us know, hey, I've got big news. I've got really, really exciting, earth-shattering information for you about this person, about Jesus. Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the coming Christ. So what? I always like to end with a question, so what? What do we do with this? What, what difference does this make? I've, I've just given you tons of information about the setup and the way that he writes, and it's a, an epic story, and, and it's thrilling, and it's exciting, and you can go to any movie theater and find a great, exciting, thrilling story that makes absolutely no difference. They're fun. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't watch movies, but they do nothing. But when Mark wrote this, he's setting up this massive announcement, this huge question. So what? What are you going to do with the claims of who Jesus is? That's what it comes down to. That's what the entire book of Mark is going to come down to. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about this guy. It is a historical event. It is eyewitness account. I'm telling you what I saw and what others have seen. What are you going to do with it? The question that comes up as we go through the entire book of Mark is what are you going to do with Jesus? That's, that's really all that there is. We're going to see some cool stuff about him, some great stories, but what are you going to do with Jesus?
personally, I agree with the statement that I shared on Wednesday evening. Um, I, I stole it from another pastor, another preacher, but I really like it. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. Mark is telling us a divine story. A story from God about Jesus Christ. And it brings us to this simple question. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm excited to dig into the book of Mark, to see this epic story, to understand the accounts that you've given. But Lord, as we dig in, help us to realize this isn't just some story. It isn't just some narrative to be interesting and move on. That This should change our lives. This is earth-shattering. Lord, each one of us is faced with that question, what will we do with Jesus? Do we acknowledge that he is your son, the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all that you have set up history to be? Or was he just some guy? Lord, I pray that as we go through this study, even now, even this morning, that each of us would evaluate do we accept him as the promised Savior or not? That's the decision that each one of us is faced with. But Lord, you didn't expect us to accept it on blind faith, but you gave us a reliable account of eyewitnesses. So Father, as we dig in, help us to trust you more and more, to love you more and more, to be changed by your word because it is powerful. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had. I pray that as we delve into the book of Mark, that we would, would just fall in love with it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.